listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. I love to worship with you, and you would think, uh, attending both services each week, uh, that I uh, I would be kind of uh, spent in terms of my worship, and then I come to this service, uh, we do the same uh, musical set, uh, and man, it's like God just speaks to me in a whole new and fresh way from uh, the time I walk from over there to over here, and uh, it's just uh, amazing. Uh, Welcome to the kids today. This is a family worship Sunday for us. Uh, Welcome to the Essary family. Uh, We're so grateful that you're at. You win the prize for coming the furthest. Yeah. I, unless anybody came from further than Southeast Asia, um, which I doubt. Um, uh, but let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Thank you for uh, allowing us a little bit of time off last week. Uh, we had a nice little trip out to Boise, uh, spent some time with family. Uh, Very little actual downtime uh, because there's so much to do in Boise. So we floated the Boise River and uh, went on a several-mile hike and uh, just a number of other things. Enjoyed God's beautiful creation. Uh, Enjoyed um, a different kind of heat than we have here, much less humidity. Uh, And here's a novel concept that actually gets down like into the 50s almost every evening and in the mornings. That's, That's a... I would love that on a regular basis, but at any rate, uh, we did have a great time. But as I shared in the early service this morning, uh, while we do enjoy time away and certainly spending time with family that we don't see very often, I always miss being with you. Uh, And so it is good to be back in in our spot, even though I'm batching it for a couple of days here while my wife is uh, with a bunch of girls at camp. Uh, But we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. Paul has been dealing uh, with uh, the problems that a misunderstanding of Christian freedom can bring in the life of a church. And if you've not been with us through uh, much of this series, uh, just suffice it to say that Paul is writing this. It's a letter to a messed up church uh, in so many ways. Uh, He's been talking about a lot of different things from division to sexual immorality to compromise in various ways, and, and, and there's more to come, okay? And, uh, but uh, at any rate, in this particular section, he's really been talking about the nature and the limits of Christian freedom. The Corinthians had written to him actually asking for advice about a number of issues, and in this particular case, a particular problem that was, uh, that was pressing in the culture in which they lived, meat. Uh, was often sold in the market after having first been used in the sacrifices of the pagan temples in the city of Corinth. And so the question uh, that was presented, uh, was raising an issue, this question of conscience began to arise, are we free as Christians to eat idol meat or not? Uh, Now, at first glance, you would go, what's up with this? I mean... Uh, That's not a question with which most of us struggle. I I don't remember uh, ever walking uh, down the meat aisle at Sam's or at Walmart thinking, man, I wonder if this steak has been offered to Apollo or not. Um, uh, That's just not the kind of thing that we deal with. But the question behind the question is still really relevant today. Uh, The question behind the question is, what is Christian freedom and what are its limits? 
What are we free to do? What are we not free to do? How do we make that distinction? How do we make those judgments? That has been, in many respects, kind of the underlying theme of Paul's writing here, really since chapter 8. And then here in chapter 10, he is bringing it uh, kind of to its conclusion with a, a summary argument that it kind of encapsulates most of what he's been saying. Uh, Paul puts it kind of on the bottom shelf for those of us who, who like things kind of put on the bottom shelf. He, he gives us the bottom line on this thing. And so it's like he comes almost full circle back to this particular issue of food offered to idols and the limits of Christian liberty. Now before we jump into the text, I think it would be helpful for us if we can get a sense of the flow of Paul's argument and some of the big issues for us to consider. I was listening to David Platt preach uh, in preparation for some upcoming messages. Lexi and I are having a conversation about a couple of messages that he recently preached from the, the pulpit there at McLean. And um, he does a masterful job of talking about, and we've mentioned this through this series, how important it is that we study God's Word in its cultural context. So this cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the Corinthians, right? Um, and so there are some cultural implications here, certainly, that may seem a little foreign to us, a little weird to us. If you glance ahead at to, into chapter 11, most of your Bibles say something about head coverings and everything. You're like, what's up with that? And so, you know, you could, you could just do a, you know, a, a glancing run through some of this and think, how does this book even apply to us? But even with some of those cultural implications and different things, there are timeless truths found throughout this letter that apply to all people for all time. And so we want to be faithful to look at those and to make those uh, distinctions. What I do want you to see here, as you just glance at the text before we actually read it together, I want you to notice in particular the repeated references here to conscience. To conscience. Uh, it's a word that's used often. It's a concept that's used often in Scripture. It talks about uh, the fact that we can have a seared conscience, uh, for example. But you'll notice in verse number 25, it says, Eat whatever is sold without raising any question of conscience. Verse 27, eat whatever is set before you without, any, uh, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Again in verse 28, for the sake of conscience. And, uh, uh, and then twice more in verse number 29, I do not mean your conscience but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And so what is the issue with which Paul is wrestling? What is it that he is teaching us about? He's teaching us about the liberty of conscience, its nature and its limits. And I think we can agree that this is a vital issue for us as we wrestle with and, and try to better understand the ethical challenges that are very much a part of our culture today and uh, certainly are profound and complex, uh, as, as profound and complex as they have ever been before. Uh, we addressed just one of those uh, during summer sessions this morning. Why can't we just agree that love is love? Uh, and so that is very much a part of the culture in which we find ourselves. And, and so what does God's word say uh, on these kinds of issues? And so we, we want to have, we should strive to have Christian minds, to think Christianly, and to have informed consciences that enable us to navigate the maze of moral challenges uh, that are before us in a way that is faithful and honoring to God. And so with that, let's look at verses 23 uh, through the end of the chapter and actually into chapter 11, verse number 1. So Paul again, writing to the church at Corinth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, all things are lawful. Now you'll notice that's in quotes. 
So he's kind of quoting the Corinthians. It was a common slogan uh, among them. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, again in quotes, but not all things build up. Let, let, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You think the world would be different if we would all just live by that truth? <laughs> if we could all just do a better job of not looking out for ourselves so much, but actually looking out for our neighbor? Verse number 25 says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's actually quoting one of the Psalms there. It says, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you were disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if anyone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a verse that many of us are familiar with. You've probably seen it on a little plaque or something like that. And it takes on a much richer meaning when you consider it in its context here. He goes on to write, he says in verse number 32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything, I, everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then in verse number 1 of chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's look at this matter of liberty. Sometimes we would say license. Versus legalism. There are basically two groups in the Corinthian church. Uh, these two groups have reappeared many times over in uh, every church, essentially, and in every age throughout church history. They are here, uh, yes, at First Baptist Van Alstine and in some form or another uh, in 2021 as well. Two groups with which the Apostle Paul is primarily uh, concerned. Let's first consider the liberty group. The liberty group. On the one hand, there's this group that we would characterize as having an underactive conscience. An underactive conscience. They were thrilled with their liberty in Christ. Most of us can identify with that, especially us Americans. We love our freedom, do we not? We love liberty and those kinds of things. And so, man, that resonates with us in many respects. But they'd heard the Apostle Paul speak about freedom from the law that is ours in Jesus now that the, the tomb is empty and he has risen in victory over the grave. And that, that message of freedom resonated deeply with them to the point where they could hear almost nothing else. Now they were in danger of stretching that legitimate gospel liberty and freedom in spiritually destructive directions. They began to resist any constraints on their moral behavior. They were becoming moral libertines, we might say. Uh, licentiousness had begun to, to find a home among them. And so Paul is writing here to inform their consciences and to teach them on what basis their freedoms might legitimately be restricted. And then you've got the legalism crowd. On the other end of the spectrum, those with uh, what we might describe as having an overactive 
conscience. These folks were very concerned about upright living, so much so that they had actually begun to impose, in some cases, additional, unnecessary, extra-biblical restrictions on Christian liberty. And they had begun to judge those within the Corinthian congregation who did not meet their exacting standards. And so in contrast to the libertines, these are the legalists. And if you look at verse number 32, there's this suggestion, at least, that that these two groups may have divided generally uh, over ethnic lines. Jewish people, believers from a Jewish background, particularly concerned about behavior and conformity to the law naturally, while those from a Gentile background found restriction on their freedom particularly challenging. And you might remember that uh, even in the earlier chapters of his letter here to the Corinthians, uh, the, the Apostle Paul has had to deal quite strongly with them because of their immorality and so on. Uh, they're loose living, you might say. Um, abusing the freedom that we have in Christ. And so in our text, Paul alternates here, kind of back and forth between both of these groups, the legalists and the libertines. And he starts off with some case studies. We'll call them cultural case studies. And then uh, really verses 31 through the first uh, verse of chapter 11, he gives us some core principles Uh, that we need to consider today. Now, last week, Griff did a great job of uh, teaching the parable of the prodigal son. And there are, of course, two brothers. Uh, The younger brother takes his inheritance prematurely. He breaks his father's heart. He flees uh, with it to a far country, Scripture tells us, where he blows it on wild living. He eventually hits rock bottom. He finds himself bankrupt bankrupt and destitute and in a pigsty, longing to eat the scraps from which the pigs were fed. And then Luke, uh, writing there, uses this great phrase, he came to himself. He came to himself. You ever have one of those moments where like, you're just doing something really stupid, and then all of a sudden it's like, man, I came to myself. Like, one day I woke up. You know, I, I kinda, and, and so he resolves to return home, hoping to be welcomed back as a son. And you remember, of course, what happens while he's still afar off. Scripture tells us uh, his father runs to him. It's that phrase right there that that brought about the song, mercy came a-running. He runs to him in great joy, and there's exuberant joy at the sight of this prodigal son coming home, and they have this big celebration, a beautiful moment. And we love the story for that reason, partly because many of us have had prodigal experiences of our own. Maybe not to the degree of the prodigal son, But we've wandered off, and then we've experienced conviction uh, over our sin, and we've longed to return, and maybe even wondered if God would welcome us, as the father does in the the story of the the prodigal son. Then we've discovered to our joy that he rejoices when we repent and turn from our sin. So we, we remember that. But what about the elder brother? A lot of times we forget that guy. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about him. He's outraged at his father's behavior. You know, this son of yours, he says, when he came home, you threw a party for him. You never threw a party for me. I've been here working for you, slaving for you all these years. He feels entitled, doesn't he? He feels as though he's owed something because of his performance, essentially. Now, here's the challenge. At least this is how I'm challenged in this, and Griff brought this out really well last week. We get that these two individuals, in many ways, represent two extremes. You've got the legalistic elder brother who thinks that on the basis of his performance, he's owed some blessing. 
And then you've got the out-of-control, libertine brother who runs off and falls into terrible patterns of sin. And we get these two extremes. But here's where it's challenging to me as I begin to realize that both brothers are really lurking in my heart at the same time. Here's how this often plays out for me. All too often, I'm a legalist with regards to others, and I'm a libertine with regard to myself. I can quickly excuse and even indulge my own disobedience, my own rebellion, but just as quickly point out the sin of others. And so as we look at Scripture here, I want us to first notice these cultural case studies. And as we turn our attention to really verses 23 through 30 here, we see that Paul gives us a series of of case studies about Uh, Both, both extremes. And I want us to be careful to take all of the medicine that Paul has for us here. You you ever go to the doctor and they maybe prescribe an antibiotic for you and they tell you, you need to take all of this. But what happens often? Go home, we start taking it for a day or two or three and we start feeling better and then we quit taking it, right? That's why some of you still have half bottles of amoxicillin or whatever sitting on your shelf at home, right? In this particular case, we need to take both pills, as it were. Uh, If you're anything like me, then you will need uh, the libertine and the legalist in you to be treated by the strong medicine of the Word of God today. So notice this. He says, not everything is edifying. Not everything is edifying. He starts by speaking to the libertines at Corinth. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, Paul is, again, he's quoting a slogan that was in use in the Corinthian church. All things are lawful. That's what they were saying. We're free in Christ. We are not under the law, but we're under grace where sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more. And and those are true statements. But if you take them in isolation, then certainly they can lead to a life that is, that is unrestrained by any kind of moral boundaries. And so Paul is saying there is a sense in which you are correct. All things are lawful in this sense, but you must understand not everything is helpful. Not everything is edifying. They don't all build up. There are limits to your liberty. Now, Paul is an absolute master at pastoral theology. He immediately exposes the flaw in their thinking. Look at verse number 24 again. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You see what he's essentially saying to them there? He really sees right through them, doesn't he? He's saying, now look here, when you're boasting in your liberties like this, you're really only thinking about yourselves. That's always the problem with the the mentality of how far can I go? How much can I get away with approach to Christian ethics? Many times over, I've been asked similar questions through the years as a pastor. Pastor, like, how far can I go in this area? Like, how much is too, you know, it reminds me of the young heifers that we would put out to pasture in the spring on the dairy farm. And inevitably, they would have to go over to the electric fence that we would put up. And they would want to see just how far they could go until their nose got zapped. And they would realize, oh, that's kind of the, you know, there's a lot of Christians kind of living that way. And I just always want to go just as close to the edge as I possibly can. 
And so they, they tend to ask those kinds of questions. But so often, those kinds of questions center on me and on myself. How much can I get away with? It centers on self. We're at the center of those considerations. We're really not thinking about anyone else at all. But Paul says, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. He wants us to be thinking not first about ourselves, but about the welfare of our neighbors. This isn't the first time that Paul has made this clear. Love constrains liberty. Love constrains liberty. Love for one another imposes limitations on our freedom for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. We've continued to see that short phrase many times over in this text. For the sake of the gospel... Be morally pure for the sake of the gospel. Quit these crazy divisions and this dividing yourselves among leaders for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Paul continues to drive that truth home here. And then he reiterates here, if you'll notice, idols are nothing. Idols are nothing. So you can imagine this letter almost being read uh, in Corinth the first time you got to know the legalists, they are loving verses 23 and 24. They must have felt like Paul was putting those with underactive uh, consciences in their place. Almost say, you know, almost just pictured them kind of, you know, winking at each other and like giving the thumbs up to each other. And then, but just about that time, here comes Paul in verses 25 through 27. Now, the legalists are in his sights. These are the guys who are worrying about dietary regulations. They are the ones who would argue that no Christian can eat meat offered to an idol or suspected of having been offered to an idol under any circumstances. That's compromise with the world. Don't eat. Don't touch. Don't dance. Don't drink. Don't play cards. Don't listen to contemporary music. Don't, 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 don't. That, that's kind of their mindset. I may have gotten a little carried away there for a moment, okay? But you've got to understand that... I came from a pretty legalistic tribe, <laughs> so I have an aversion to some of these things. And now Paul is saying very directly to them, when you get to the market or when a pagan friend invites you over for dinner, don't ask any questions about where the meat came from. Don't worry about the possibility of it having originated first in the precincts of one of the pagan temples. Idols, remember, are nothing. Eat the meat with a clear conscience. Now they're really shocked. But Paul is insisting on gospel liberty, and he wants to shatter man-made extra-biblical regulations. That was one of the characterizing factors of the Pharisees, let's face it. I did a series a number of years ago on the Pharisees, and on Phariseeism called Adventures in Missing the Point, because they often would. They often would. They had all these extra-biblical, all these extra things added to what Scripture said. So Paul is saying very directly to them, hey, you have Christian freedom in this area. But then with that, he then says, think of the consciences of others. And so while they're still reeling from Paul's challenge, he turns his attention back to the Libertines in verses 28 and 29. It's like he's kind of going back and forth here. So at the other end of the spectrum, the Libertines were indulging themselves in light of the clear conviction that idols are empty lumps of wood or stone, and they never once thought about the implications of their eating for someone else who happened to be in attendance at the meal that day, looking on, watching how they were behaving. And so Paul gives this scenario Someone at the dinner that night lets you know that the food has, in fact, been consecrated to a pagan deity. So now what? Now what? He says, don't eat. 
Do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. And so now it can get really confusing. And people who don't have a clear understanding of Scripture here would say, man, Paul's just confusing. He says, on one hand, eat the meat. On the other hand, don't eat the meat. So which is it? What a contradiction. Well, just as a bit of background, you might need to understand that there was a wave of persecution under the Roman emperor Antiochus Epiphanes. And one of the ways that they persecuted the Jews was to require them to eat food that they knew had been offered to an idol. It was a kind of a, a, a test of faith, you might say. And something like that is perhaps what Paul has in mind here. He's, he's tightening the screws. This, this guest, he makes it clear this is an unbeliever, a pagan in other words, at the meal knows that you're a Christ follower and he really wants to put you in a tight spot. And so he thinks that if you eat meat, knowing that it's been offered to an idol, uh, that must mean that you're being disloyal to Jesus. Now, Paul has already told us that whether it's been offered to an idol or not really doesn't matter from a Christian point of view. But the non-Christian thinks that it does and is horrified at how lightly you seem to take your allegiance to this King Jesus. Especially if you happily indulge yourself in eating a meal that you know has been offered to an idol. So do you see the situation if you stand on your liberty and your freedom, you can potentially shatter your witness. This man thinks that you're ready to trample Christ underfoot just for a chance to fill your belly. No, he says, for his sake, for the sake of his conscience, think through your behavior so that you might not bring the name of Jesus into disrepute. His thinking may be all wrong, but, but if you're going to lead him down the wrong uh, direction and cause general misunderstanding uh, about what it means to follow Jesus, then you need to limit your liberty. Love constrains liberty. We need to think about the consciences of others. Paul is urging us, be concerned about the way our behavior affects other people. Are we causing them to stumble? Gospel love constrains liberty. I became really mindful of this when I was a young seminary student in Northeast Ohio. I took a job working for two brothers who owned a Western auto store. And it was a miserable few months, just to be honest with you, because they both had differing ideas about how the business should be run. And uh, while they were co-owners, I got caught in the middle all the time. Uh, and, and one of the things that I began to experience in ways that I really never had before was kind of like this just constant taunting. They called me preacher boy, and they just found it mystifying that a young guy in his 20s could be a virgin, you know, and so they would just, I mean, all the time, just coming at me with stuff. We're going to take you out Friday night and show you a good time, and I mean, just all that kind of stuff, just constantly, you know, and so I, I really had to check myself because I would often get frustrated, and I would want to come back at them in really a very unchristlike way. And it would have been very easy, and there were times when I certainly crossed the line into some Phariseeism thinking that I was so much better than they because I didn't do this or I did do that and I did you know all those sorts of things. So Paul is addressing this issue and, and there's a tension here, admittedly. And so he essentially says, when you look at the second half of verses 29 and 30, he turns back one more time to the legalists and you see how, again, he's alternating back and forth. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Yes, there are limits to our freedom. In particular, concern for others ought to override all desire to serve ourselves. But, he says, 
Here's a qualification to that principle. He asks us to essentially beware of the tyranny of the weaker brother. Beware those who will claim that because they take offense at some conviction or practice of yours, you must therefore immediately surrender your freedom or do as your conscience allows and the scriptures dictate. And we're seeing a a, a very secular version of that running rampant in our culture right now. That's why we often say it appears, it seems, that in our culture that it's wrong to say that anything is wrong. Okay, and, and we talked about this in more detail even at the 945 time slot and how in many respects the church has lost its voice on certain issues. We've muddied the water on certain issues because of gross hypocrisy, quite honestly. So I think we have to be very careful here. There's this, this ideology that's floating around today that says if you don't agree with my choices, if you don't agree with my lifestyle, then you must hate me for example. We don't want that to be the message. That's why we talked this morning in, this, in our 945 slot about this tension between truth and love. How do we lovingly share the truth? And that's where then these, number two, these timeless core principles come in. What are these timeless principles? While we don't have to deal with this specific issue of meat offered to idols and so forth, there are some timeless principles that Paul unpacks here that apply to all people for all time. Very wisely balances both extremes, the needs and the concerns of both extremes in the church. No one gets off the hook. Libertines have gospel limits pressed upon them. Legalists are urged to embrace the true freedom that is theirs in Christ. And just in case we're still confused about how to apply that for ourselves... And you're sitting here this morning, well, when should I stand on my rights and my liberties as a Christian, and when should I resist my freedom? When should I restrict my freedom? When is it wise to hold back and alter my behavior? In case that's still confusing to us, Paul gets very practical in verse number 31 through verse number 1 of chapter 11. And he gives us the timeless principles that that, that have been informing his whole discussion really since chapter 8. He just spells them out for us. So the first one, and you might want to jot these down, because anytime you are forced with kind of a a moral or ethical dilemma, you should run those things through these, these four things, this filter, you might say. The first one is the doxological principle. The doxological principle. Verse number 31, he says, Whether therefore you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all. With what end in view? To the glory of God. Sola Deo Gloria. For the glory of God. Doxology is about the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. Eating and drinking, it should be about God's glory. How you live is about God's glory. You exist for God's glory. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And to whom it be the glory forever. So Paul wants us to ask ourselves as we weigh a particular decision, is God glorified. Is God glorified in this? Will he be honored before the eyes of a watching world? Will God be glorified by this choice, by this decision, by this social media post, by this tweet, by this whatever it is? Will this ultimately bring glory to God? The glory of God is not simply our concern on a Sunday when we gather here for worship. It's a fundamental foundational principle to guide us in all deliberations and in all of our decision making. 
Will this decision, will this action, will this behavior, will this way of speaking and acting bring glory to God? That's the doxological principle. And then there's the edification principle. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Will this action edify? Will it be good for others? Will it build up? Will it help heavenward the people of God? Or will it cause my my brothers to stumble? Will I be a blessing in this or a burden? So we need to be asking ourselves regularly, if, 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 if I'm going to do this thing, will this be a hindrance, a stumbling block to someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Will it edify? Will it build up? Now, that's not to say that God intends for us to just be like super syrupy, positive all the time, and you can't ever point out anything that's wrong. Oh, don't ever want to talk about sin, for goodness sake. That's not what he's saying here. We must not think first or simply about ourselves and the consequences of our behavior, choices, or words or actions for ourselves alone. We must ask, will this edify? Will this build up? Will this be a blessing or will it be a burden or am I causing others to stumble? The doxological principle, the edification principle. And and just incidentally here, you remember the first and second, the, the great commandment and the second, which is like it, that summarizes God's moral law? The glory of God. <laughs> the glory of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's precisely what Paul is encouraging us to do here. Think first and most importantly, of the glory of God, and then the good of your neighbor. Our student ministry did some shirts a while back. Simply says, love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. And we would do so much better if we would first consider those two things. The way I'm thinking, the things that I'm saying, the things that I'm doing, my actions, do those, first and most importantly, honor God and show love for my neighbor. Now, some of you would be real quick to go, oh, well, if I do that, that's compromise. It can be. That's why you've got to find this balance. That's why it's important that daily, regularly, we are praying for gospel discernment looking at the world through the lens of Scripture, through a biblical worldview. We don't want to be formed, obviously, by the culture. Okay, We don't want to be compromising the truth, but we also don't want to compromise the truth uh, because of the way in which we stand on our freedoms and our liberties in Christ. And that brings us to the next one. That's the evangelistic principle. Look at verse 33. Paul writes, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That they may be saved. That they may be saved. What is it that Paul wants as the final objective in the lives of those among whom he ministers? What is it that he wants among pagan Greeks or legalistic Jews? He wants everything that he does and everything that he refrains from doing to promote a gospel end. It's for the sake of the gospel. Does that sound familiar? And so here's his question. Is my behavior consistent with the gospel? 
If I were to share the good news about Jesus in, in this group or in this company with the way that I had just spoken yesterday or last week or whatever, with the way that I've been speaking and the things that I've been doing and, and all those sorts of things, would that make the gospel now in this conversation more plausible or laughable? So if one day I'm over here and I'm laughing at suggestive uh, language and, and all those sorts of things and c coarse and crude and all those sorts of things, and over here you're going, can I tell you about the love of God in Christ? And people would just be like, wait, what? Something's not making sense here. Something's not adding up. And so Paul is saying, be very careful. Be very careful. I want them to be saved, and I want my life to reflect and to mirror what the transforming power of the gospel does in a human being who bends the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what I want. And then there's the imitation principle. The imitation principle. There's the doxological principle, the edification principle, the evangelistic principle, and then the imitation principle. Look at verse number one of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's ambition is to be like Christ in his moral choices, in his public life, in his private life. You remember how Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost? That's actually the language that Paul himself uses here in verse number 33, isn't it? He seeks not his own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And so Paul is essentially imitating, mirroring the pattern and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to be like Christ. And so he relinquishes even his own privileges. We talked about that in chapter 9, where Paul said, man, I even set aside some of my apostolic rights and privileges. Why? For the sake of the gospel. I could take full advantage of these things, but I choose not to because I don't want it to get in the way of the gospel. And he says, now that's what I want for you too, Corinthians. And certainly by application this morning, that's what I want for you too, Van Alstinians. I think that's what we're called. <laughs> Paul wants us to be like Christ, ultimately. I want you to look where I'm looking. I want you to rest on the one upon whom I am resting. I want you to imitate the selfless sacrifice of the one I also am seeking to imitate. I want you to be like Jesus. If anyone could have come on the scene and demanded his rights and his, his freedoms, it was Jesus. But what does Scripture tell us? He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And if there was ever a miscarriage of justice, it was in the final days and hours of the life of Jesus. He's shoved through a kangaroo court on trumped-up charges where ultimately he was murdered, right? Where's justice in that? What about his rights? What about his rights? Jesus laid all that aside. Why? Because love constrains liberty. And if we're completely honest, you know, we have to admit that all too often we're not even willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. Inconvenienced. So my hope and prayer today 
is that while we may not see the direct correlation between this whole idea of eating meat offered to idols, that you will see the big truth that Paul is teaching here to the Corinthians and to us as well. So if we could bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment this morning. Certainly each and every one of us have faced some significant decisions. Complex issues. Moral and ethical challenges. Some things not addressed directly and explicitly in Scripture. And so we, we, we pray for wisdom. We pray for discernment. We pray for God's leading in making those decisions. And I hope and pray that the Apostle Paul has equipped us today to make those decisions for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. You say, but, but my rights. But, but my freedom. Paul says, but, but the gospel. Love constrains liberty. So my prayer today for each of us is that we have discerning hearts as we look at this broken, sinful world through the lens of God's word. And have a willingness to lay aside at times as God directs us, as God leads us, even our own freedoms, our own liberties for the sake of the gospel. May it be for the glory of God, for the salvation of the lost the edification of others. If you're here today and you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to take that step of faith today. Your salvation, my salvation, is not based upon anything I have done or anything you've done or anything we could do. It's all based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So I would love to share with you from the Word of God how you can know today that you're in a right relationship with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be some here today who need to take another step. Maybe it's time for you to identify with Christ in believer's baptism or maybe it's time for you to unite with a local church, a local body of believers where you can serve and be fed and, and nurtured, discipled. We'd love to talk to you about those things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us gospel discernment as we consider how we live each and every day the decisions we make, the things that we say, the positions we take, how firmly we take those positions. Lord, help us to run everything, everything through your word, that we be in check by the Holy Spirit. 
May we never do anything that would hinder others from coming to know you. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.